the credit card companies have very strong lobbyists on the Hill, and I think it really would be a conflict of interest for them to stop trying to get young people sucked into credit cards. Yeah, they're, they're as bad as the cigarette companies. In, in many ways, yes. And one of the things that we've also found is that there is a correlation between debt and depression. So for many people, the issues that we're talking about are not just about financial freedom, but actually life or death. Welcome to You Are the Guest, a weekly show where you can be the guest and tell people what you and your friends and neighbors think about news events and issues of the day. It's part talk show, part opinion poll, part reality show, and a whole lot of fun. And it's completely dependent upon your participation as a guest. To be considered as a guest for a future show, check out the website at www.youaretheguest.com for details. Now here's your program host, Bill Grady. Greetings from the great city of Fort Dodge, Iowa, and welcome to show number 88 of You Are the Guest, the show where we talk to everyday people just like you and me about their lives and about the issues of the day. Our guest today joins us from Washington, D.C., William R. Patterson. Welcome to You Are the Guest. Bill, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate the opportunity. William, could you tell our audience about yourself? Absolutely. Again, my name is William R. Patterson. I am chairman and CEO of the Warcoffer Capital Group, LLC, which is a financial holding company. We do staged investments in private businesses and also commercial real estate ventures. I'm the business and financial expert on XM Satellite Radio 169 The Power, and I also run a financial training company called the Barron Solution Group, where we teach business and personal finance skills to adults, and we also do a national pro bono workshop series for children teaching business and personal finance skills. And how did you fall into this line of work? Well, as far as teaching children and adults, that really evolved from our book, The Barren Sun. It was a national bestseller featured in the Forbes Book Club and translated in a number of languages around the world. And what we saw is that people needed some form of sustaining support, a way that they could continue to learn after they had read and began to apply a lot of the lessons that were laid out in the book. And what got you started in wanting to help people? Well, I've always had a passion for helping people. I was raised that way by my parents, my mother and father. They always taught me that really service was the way in which you could find your calling and also a way in which you could create wealth. We teach in our program, The Barron Solution, and also the book, The Barron Sun, that value is actually the greatest attracting force of money in the world. So it's by looking for ways in which you can create value and benefit for people that you are ultimately able to create sustained success. What is the most asked question that people ask you about? That is a great question, and that's actually the question on which the the Barron Sun was based. And that question is, how can I change the condition of my life when I have absolutely nothing, no money, no resources, and no idea where to start? So that's what the Barron Sun was all about, and that's what our our program, the Barron Solution, was all about, is showing people how they could leverage other people's time, other people's money, and other people's resources, other people's everything to begin to build a business or to improve their financial situation as an investor. So in other words, the biggest resource that a person has not only is themselves, but other people. 
Definitely, and it's about leveraging a step-by-step process. A lot of people are, are struggling because they may go to a source here or they may go to a source there, which doesn't provide an integrated approach. They may teach you one aspect of it, but it's really about learning how can I integrate all of the different pieces to be successful. That's really also one of the unique things about our approach to Barron Solution is that it does integrate the three major wealth-building vehicles, the stock market, real estate, and entrepreneurship. So as you see, let's say, the stock market crash of the late 90s, the early 2000s, which, uh, which is really where the, the Barron Sun and the Barron Solution began to evolve, a lot of people ran from the stock market into the real estate market. And as they ran into the real estate market, a lot of people really didn't have the skills, they didn't have the training, both as investors, both as real estate agents. And that's one of the reasons why we are seeing such a, a big crisis in the housing market now. So tell me about that crisis in the housing market. Is today's trouble in the housing market mostly the bank's fault? Well, I I think there's a, a little bit of everyone to blame. And I think, first of all, you always have to look at yourself and look at the personal responsibility that you have for your life. But I think it also stems back to the school system and really just our emphasis on financial education. But let's address specifically the banking situation because we look at really the three aspects of every transaction. We look at the facilitator, which may be the banks. We look at the the seller, which may also be some of the mortgage companies, the real estate agents, and so forth. And then we look at the consumer. And each has a certain set of risk and opportunities that are available to them. But as we look at the banks, clearly there is a, a certain responsibility that banks have, one of making responsible loans. And when we talk about responsible loans, it's one thing to create an opportunity for someone to get into a home, but it's also another thing to create a sustained opportunity where a person can stay in that home. One of the things that came out from Freddie Mac was that 15% of people who actually have subprime loans qualify for prime or lower interest rate loans, but because people didn't have the financial education, they didn't understand their credit rating, they were actually paying those much higher prices. And we also saw just how these, these prices were skyrocketing. You had people that were doing these hybrid loans, these creative loans that really were going to get people in a lot of trouble because they said you had the real estate agents who may not have been uh, very well trained telling people, well, go ahead and buy the house. Buy as much house as you can afford because prices are jumping 20, 20% a year, and they'll continue to jump. But they didn't think about the economics, which says that wages and salaries drive the, the price of, of homes because people have to have the ability to buy these homes. So if, they're not, if their salary isn't increasing at, at 20% a year, which most people don't, at the average worker's wages increase about 3.4%, if those wages aren't increasing, then people obviously are not going to be able to continue to buy these houses. So it creates this greater fool theory where ultimately someone's left holding the bag. Especially a lot of folks got caught with the variable loans, correct? Absolutely. That was a big thing, a lot of interest-only loans, a lot of variable interest rate loans, and they weren't prepared for rates to continue to rise. 
And as these rates continue to rise and eventually that, that little uh, initial period where they had the low interest rate wore off, they now had to go out and either try to refinance this property. And a lot of people found that when the real estate market softened, they were upside down and they actually owed more money than the house or the property was worth. Or they didn't have the loan-to-value ratio to refinance, and that put them in a lot of trouble and at risk of foreclosure. What are some actual horror stories that you've heard of? And I don't want you to use any names of any people, but have you talked to some people who have gotten caught and are just kind of up in arms saying, what should I do next? Absolutely. And I'll actually tell you a story of a young lady who was at one of the workshops that we were doing. It was a real estate workshop. And she was saying, wow, I really wish I had had this information when I first got into real estate investing. One of the things she did, she went out and bought a couple of rental properties. Now, this is an investor. I'll also give you an example of someone who is just uh, a, a regular homeowner. But th- this person was an investor. She got into real estate investing. You know, I probably saw a late-night infomercial or something and decided she wanted to become a real estate investor as a way to build wealth. And she didn't do it as a way that we would advocate, which is setting up an entity and also bringing in a, a syndicate or a group of investors so that you aren't taking on all these mortgages on your, your pers- against your personal credit. Well, that's what she did. And she ended up losing the property because she was in a situation where the, she couldn't rent out the properties and she also couldn't flip it for profit. So she ended up with two foreclosures on her personal credit report. Now it's very difficult for her to, to get credit. One of the things that uh, I pointed out to her was uh, this, this idea that you always have to have a plan in mind and you really need to structure yourself properly when it comes to operating a business. And I'll tell you another horror story, which is uh, a young lady who was talking about, uh, she, was, she had just come out of bankruptcy or just had really entered into bankruptcy, and she said, I don't understand how a person like Donald Trump is able to, to go into bankruptcy and still be on top and still have billions of dollars. And I said, well, that points to a very interesting situation because look at Donald Trump and coming out of billions of dollars in debt, and look at your debt. You may have ten thousand, twenty thousand, fifty, or a hundred, and a lot of people have twenty to a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt that we see. And I said, look at that compared to being a million dollars in debt, ten million or a billion dollars in debt. If you look at it you realize that you're really not in that bad of a situation when you think about the relative nature of debt. But she says, yes, but Donald Trump has so many other resources that he's able to leverage to get out of debt. I said, that's exactly the point. Donald Trump is not trying to get out of fifty or a hundred thousand or a billion dollars worth of debt using a fifty thousand dollar job. You can't do that either. You have to use a different set of tools. You have to use some different thinking. And for most people, a job is a fifty thousand dollar solution to a million dollar problem. And if you have a million dollar problem, you of course have to use a million dollar solution. What are the financial problems or pitfalls that most people should avoid, but they don't? Well, of course, just basic financial knowledge. There are so many people who are out there investing in things that they don't understand. They don't spend the time to budget appropriately. And we've actually found that there are seven major reasons that people struggle financially, and these reasons have absolutely nothing to do with money. And I know that sounds like a a strange statement, but the number one reason that people struggle financially is that they don't have a mentor. 
Whenever I ask a person who's struggling financially, do they have a mentor, the answer is always no. But a mentor can help you avoid a lot of the hurdles and pitfalls that you're going to face, both as an investor and also as an entrepreneur. The second thing is their belief system. Most people don't truly believe that they can change the condition of their life starting from where they are. They think that they have to stay in that situation of, of being in massive debt. The, the third thing is their network. Most people are not really leveraging their network and their relationships to help them get ahead financially and to help others get ahead financially. And we found that your network is a direct reflection of your net worth. The fourth thing is that most people are using the wrong vehicles to build wealth. They're trying to build wealth with a job. But the problem about doing that is it becomes a linear approach where you're trading an hour of your time for a set dollar amount. But you have to learn to create and acquire assets and businesses, and you have to learn how to create products and services once that you can sell infinitely. That's how you can really apply the principle of leverage to make a lot of money very quickly and a sustainable source of income. And five and six are people who are not using the proper tools and are not developing the proper knowledge that can help them succeed and really shorten the learning curve. And then, of course, number seven is most people are not every day doing the most important thing that will change the condition of their life. They, I actually was working with a client, and I was with his principal investor. I was pulling together a business plan for him, and the investor told him, I want to make sure that where you're spending your time, it lines up, that if you were to plot it out on a graph, it would line up with the revenues or the potential revenues of the company. And that's exactly what people need to do, is they need to invest their time where they're going to see that return, both immediately and over the long term. So if people really look at these seven things and evaluate their life against them, they'll find that these are really the keys that can help them achieve success more, more quickly. And don't you also think that part of the problem is that people don't see money as a tool or a resource? They just see it as something that they can go out and spend. Definitely, definitely. There is a pervasive consumer mentality among Americans and really a lot of people around the world is that as soon as I get money, I need to go spend it. But people don't realize that every dollar they spend has the power to compound in $4 over the next 16 years and $8 over the next 24. I'll, I'll tell you a brief story about my relationship with my father. I always talk about my father because he taught me a lot of great lessons about money very early. I remember I wanted to be a professional basketball player. That was always you know, a goal. Being from Chicago, I was a big Michael Jordan fan and and, and the like, and I wanted this pair of Nikes. They were a pair of Nikes that had a pump on them, and, you know, it was a nice, nice little gimmick from Nike. They were about $200, and I asked my father, I said, hey, can you buy me this pair of Nikes? And he said, all right, well, let's pull up a stock chart for Nike. And he, he pulled up a stock chart for Nike, and the stock had nearly doubled over a couple of years. Then he pointed to a beat-up pair of shoes that I had in the corner, and he asked me, he said, how much do you think those shoes are worth? I said, probably next to nothing. He said, so what would you rather have, the stock or, these, or this beat-up pair of shoes or this pair of shoes? And I said, well, the stock. And it was at that point that I understood that with every dollar, I was choosing to be rich or poor. And not only could I make money by moving from being a consumer to being an investor, I could make even more money by learning to operate the business and sell the products and services. And I can make even more money by selling interest in that business to other investors. So that was really the, the basis for, for my success in learning how I could apply the principles of business at a very young age.
What's the craziest thing that you know of that someone actually spent money on? The craziest thing, wow. You know, I, I see a lot of things, and, you know, crazy is, is definitely a judgment. And, you know, if it, if it makes you happy, it may be worth it. But I would say I've seen people spend a lot of money on 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 weddings. You know, I've seen the huge, you know, $10, $12 million weddings. And, and you see those on TV, too. It's like, okay, um, was there a better use for that money other than cake? Right. You know, and I understand that if there's a hidden agenda to having something that large, that if it becomes a networking event, if it becomes something that brings you, you more business, if it becomes advertising promotion or something like that, then, you know, perhaps that, that's one thing. But, you know, definitely when you're having the half a million dollar parties for your, your daughter's Sweet 16 event or, or things like that, you know, definitely not my choices, but each person makes their own choices about what they spend money on and what brings them joy. I always suggest that whenever you do spend money, make sure you are investing and saving first before you go out and spend money on things that depreciate or have no value. And don't get caught up on what you see on TV and try to replicate that. Absolutely. And understand that that's not the source of value. Material things do not give you value. They just become a means to an end, a means to you to provide service to other people, a means to you to get the things that you need. But material items do not bring you happiness. They do not bring you joy in the long term. And don't watch Hollywood. <laughs> if you try to outspend Hollywood, you can't do it. Definitely. There's always someone with more money than you who, who's going to be doing uh, some ridiculous things. What's right or what's wrong with the way our schools teach kids about money? Well, unfortunately, with, some, some, with a few exceptions, the schools really don't teach children anything about money other than how to count. They really don't teach you the basics of investing. I, I think it's uh, crazy that they teach you about geometry, but they don't teach you how to read a stock chart. And I think as we do our workshop series with children across the country, we primarily focus on a couple of key areas that the young people need to know about. One is vision and concept development, how to perceive market opportunities to create and implement a business plan. So often our school system trains young people to be employees, that schools are basically manufacturing a product. And that product are the students that they can sell to the companies. And the companies have their affiliate relationships set up with the schools because they're making donations or they're on campus selling credit cards or providing credit cards or selling junk food to kids. And the schools take the money because they are usually undercapitalized or they're just looking to expand. But you really have to teach young people how they can become independent. And also one of the big things that we're pushing for right now is vocational training reform and just reform in the schools because uh, on the, the financial education side, because instead of just teaching a child to be a mechanic, you can also teach that person to be an entrepreneur, to be an investor, real estate investor, and the like. And if you teach them these skills about the stock market, you can show them how they, been, how they can become financially independent at a much younger age. One of the things that we've seen is that the cost of, of college education, according to the College Board, is up 51% on an inflation-adjusted basis over the last 10 years. Now, I know most people's salary uh, has not increased 51%, even if you count inflation, but much less if you adjust for inflation. 
So it's going to become a lot more difficult for the, the poor and the middle class to afford college education. And as you see, many of these lower-wage jobs disappearing due to the automation, the mechanization, offshoring, and the privatization of jobs, these things are going away. So it's going to be more and more important for young people to develop the skills to become entrepreneurs and to create their own jobs. So I think you have to learn the vision, the concept development. You have to learn the skills of leadership and cooperation, the financial management, the networking, and the sales skills, and really the networking, because that accounts for 80% of your success. Do the credit card companies have a moral or ethical responsibility to how they market themselves to young people? Absolutely. I, I think that the many of the credit card companies are totally irresponsible in how they market to young people. And just, honestly, many companies across the U.S. and around the world, are, are they target young people because they know if we get them young enough, they'll become customers for life and they'll become uh, indebted for life. And even if you look at the colleges and universities, many of them are drawing young people in and are leaving them with sixty to $100,000 worth of debt, and they're going into thirty dollars and $45,000 jobs. Yeah, they'll that, be unable to, to pay off those loans. Yeah, there's no way for them to even get a good head start for a lot of kids. Absolutely. So I definitely think... Uh, there should be a minimum age or at least an education component that goes along with debt that you understand. And really that children understand that debt, the difference between consumer debt and investment debt, you know, we're primarily against uh, consumer debt. We push for investment debt. Investment debt is when you use debt to, to create and acquire assets that will produce income. I think that's really what you want to push for is investment debt where you're making money from your debt as opposed to being drained financially by the debt. Because paying 18 to 30% interest on a credit card is certainly an easy way to rob yourself of wealth. So realize that you're throwing away your multi-million dollar retirement by giving it to the credit card companies. Do you think the credit card companies will self-police themselves or is this a, a problem that will need to be fixed by legislation? I think legislation would be ideal, but I really think it's going to have to happen in the schools. I think it's going to have to happen in the homes. The credit card companies have very strong lobbyists on the Hill, and I think it really would be a conflict of interest for them to stop trying to get young people sucked into credit cards. Yeah, they're, they're as bad as the cigarette companies. In, in many ways, yes. And one of the things that we've also found is that there is a correlation between debt and depression. So for many people, the issues that we're talking about are not just about financial freedom, but actually life or death. And when you look at how debt is even used as a tool of war, you understand the kind of uh, reaction that a person can have when they're faced with mountains of debt. And we deal with people who literally cannot pay their next bill. Final question, what are five traits that most financially secure people have? Because it's, it's not just that they have a lot of money. It's got to be that they have good habits. Absolutely. One, they save and they save and invest as, as the priority. Uh, before they spend, that is the first thing they do is they save and invest. Two, they are knowledgeable about the things that they're investing in. They don't rely on 
uh, even their financial advisors, one of the things that you see between the, the people of moderate wealth and people of great wealth is they have people around them who can execute their ideas as opposed to people who are necessarily suggesting, you know, this is something you should invest in, you should invest in this stock. They say, hey, I want to buy X amount of companies in this industry. I want you to find me the key players. So they are very clear about what they want to do, and they surround themselves with people who can execute those ideas which is actually the, the number three thing also, is really having that strong network. One of the things you'll find is that, as I mentioned, your network is a direct reflection of your net worth. But as you begin to create opportunities for others in your network, they will give you information that will help you make informed decisions. And you're not necessarily acting on inside information, but you have a, a greater perspective because you're dealing with the industry experts who understand the trends and you have a much greater potential for profit in making wiser decisions. They also, of course, avoid debt, and if they do use debt, it is more investment debt than consumer debt. And then the last thing is that they're actually also very charitable with their, their wealth, and they find that by helping others succeed and giving back, one, it's a way to do well by doing good, but there are also many tax deductions, and they're able to use all of these different entities so that they are able to limit their tax burdens. So learning how to effectively use the system legally is going to be a great way for many people to build wealth. William, it's time to play Ask Bill 3. This is where I get to turn the microphone over to you, and you get to ask me three questions about anything. So fire away. Definitely. This is uh, a, a, a section of the show I've been waiting for for quite a while. I've listened to the show in the past, and I know you were a, a big fan of entrepreneurship as you left the, I guess, the um, terrestrial radio to, to do your own thing. Mm -hmm. And looking back at your journey as an entrepreneur, are there one or two things that you would have done differently that you felt could have accelerated your path to success? I think if I can have a conversation with myself five years ago and said, here's what you need to know, it will be that you'll need to have a lot more patience on where the business is going. And don't expect that within 30 days or 60 days that you're going to be up and running, although that's a worthwhile expectation, that you're going to have to build that patience to say, give it some time, um, keep pushing, though, and it will eventually happen. Okay. How about for you? What, what things did you find in your journey? Definitely going back to those seven major reasons, they were big factors for me as well, but having a mentor and being more active in networking, even as a young child, there was a, a gentleman that I went to high school with, and he had a very strong network. And actually in high school, he leveraged that network to throw parties. And in high school, he was able to make $100,000. So you had a young person who didn't have a conventional job who was making more than a lot of people's parents. And I understood then the real power of networking and then also going to school and leveraging those networks. I think that's one of the big things that colleges and universities also need to pay more attention to is making sure that there's more integration among the majors at the higher levels of the curriculum so that you can leverage other people to build businesses and to build wealth. Now, the second question I had for you, was there a major setback in your life that actually turned out to be a stepping stone to greater success for you? Um, actually, yeah. Um, 
back in 1988, I was fired from a position in radio. And at that time, it was just, first of all, I couldn't get past the the uh, fact that I was actually fired. And because it, it was it was something that I never thought would happen to me. I never thought I would be fired. And then when it happened, I thought, well, you know, this is going to be like a black mark on my, my career. And what it actually did was it opened up so many other doors. And what I found out was that for every ending is a beginning – and that, um, you know, being fired in today's uh, or job market isn't that big a deal anymore, especially you know, if, it, if it's just something which at that time was just a, a philosophical difference. I wanted to do business the right way, and they didn't. So um, they kind of saw me as uh, somebody that was a burr under their saddle, and they moved me on. And in hindsight, they were moved on themselves because they weren't doing business the right way. And I kind of felt vindicated because of that. But uh, I would say that was that was for me. That was back in 1988. And, and um, the other thing that I did is when I started my business five years ago, I started it on the day or the anniversary of me being fired as kind of a, um, a, a testament of saying, you know what, so many years ago when you – were fired, you thought you didn't have any place to go, and look where you are in 2002 and moving forward. So how about for you? I would say some similar stories. I ended up uh, leaving jobs for, for various reasons uh, when I was a little younger. I'm still a relatively young guy. And uh, either the company was going through a severe downsizing, you know, again. Um, but I would say one of the big things when I started my own company, I had a, I bought into a company. We were doing some, some private equity deals, some staged investments in, in businesses, and I had some companies in the portfolio that weren't making money. And, you know, this was, again, the late 90s where anything that had a dot-com on it, you could pretty much sell it to a venture capitalist, and they were going to try to take it public and make billions of dollars off of it. And one of the, because I was also an investor and a trader, I was able to look at the stock market and say this thing wasn't turning around anytime soon, and I was making a lot of money by playing it to the downside, but I also had business holdings that were, were suffering greatly, and I really didn't have the support of my, my board at that time, so I ended up selling my interest in the company and starting up a new company, but it was a mentor that I had, a, a gentleman by the name of Chris Williams, who runs one of the largest African-American-owned investment banks on Wall Street, and who had just left Lehman Brothers to start his own company that really convinced me that I could go out, do this thing on my own, build a new board, and, and be successful. And it was that, that situation that was definitely a turning point for me. Okay. Now, the last one is uh, a great question that I, I'm curious to find the answer to. What would you like your legacy to be, one, in, in life or in the world, and then also in radio? Well, life in the world, I want to have a legacy of being a good husband, a good father, a good son, a, a good brother, a, a good friend, if you will. So that legacy to me means much more to me than anything else. As far as the broadcasting industry, I basically have left it. And so I guess if I want a legacy in my broadcasting career, it was that I was a community broadcaster. I, I, I cared about my community, and that's why we won so many Crystal Awards for our community service. 
And what I've been finding as I've been talking to people around town was that after I've been gone for a while, they really recognize the contributions that I made to the community. And uh, so as far as a broadcaster, it, it would be the community service and also it would be that I helped other people in their careers because I've seen other people that have gone on to start their own businesses and start their own projects after working for me. And I take a lot of pride in their business ventures and the fact that they learned those things from working under my wing or, or uh, as part of our staff and part of my business association. So uh, if you could answer that question, how would you answer it? I, I agree with you there. It's For me, it's definitely along the lines of service. Uh, one of the things that I've always wanted to do, and that was really the, the passion behind the whole idea of the Barron series and the Barron solution was helping people to tap into their great idea and and their passion. And that's really where the title, the Barron, came from. It wasn't about helping people to earn a few more dollars a month or to become a millionaire, but to tap into their great passion that could help them become an industry Barron or a Baroness, where they could leave a legacy not only for for their children, but for future generations. So that's my goal is to help people to tap into that passion and, and find their, their great idea as opposed to, um, you know, perhaps building someone else's. I had lunch with a mentor of mine, Dean Sorensen, who, who uh, I worked for for 10-plus for years, and Dean and I have stayed good friends after our business association. And as we were having lunch, um, I asked him two questions. I asked him, uh, uh, first of all, you know, what type of things could you share with me that would last a lifetime? And he would say, and he told me, he goes, well, you basically said it. Look long-term and look at things that you can get involved in that will have an impact for a lifetime. You know, think, think long-term. And the other thing he said is, if it really is God's money, then let's use that money here on earth and help people out. So I, I thought that was some good things and some, some good advice, and, and uh, those things have stuck with me since I've had lunch with, with Dean uh, about, about a month ago or so. Great wisdom, definitely. William, do you want to tell about your books and how people can find out about the things that you have to offer? Sure. Again, the name of the book is called The Barren Sun. We've actually teamed up with about 20 other international best-selling authors and world-renowned experts, including Mark Victor Hansen and Jack Canfield of Chicken Soup for the Soul and David Bach of Finish Rich and Automatic Millionaire to give away more than $3,000 in electronic bonus gifts from our website, which is barrenseries.com. That's B-A-R-O-N-S-E-R-I-E-S.com, barrenseries.com, to anyone who purchases the book from there. We also have a number of great training programs, audio CDs and workshops, about 30 programs ranging from everything from the stock market, government grants, to the music industry, the speaking business, publishing business. And we also do, of course, personal coaching. And if you're interested in that, you can call toll-free 888-90-BARON. That's 888-90-B-A-R-O-N. That goes out to my publicist, but I do get all of those calls and return them personally. And for our international audience, you can also call 1-702-948-5073. William R. Patterson, thank you so much for being our guest this week on You Are the Guest. Bill, my pleasure. Thank you. Look forward to being back. 
If you'd like to be a guest, it's real easy to find out how. Just go to our website at www.youaretheguest.com and click Be the Guest for all the details. That concludes this week's edition of You Are the Guest from the great city of Fort Dodge, Iowa. I'm Bill Grady. Thanks for listening.